0: Я хочу вам про наші днів міцної яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинулись. Ми, діти, ми, живі люди,
1: Україна. Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine appears to have reached an inflection point. Russian ground forces are on their back foot on every front. Even as they continue shelling Ukrainian cities with long-range artillery, Peace talks in Istanbul raised expectations that a ceasefire might be in the offing, as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky indicated that neutrality, but not territorial concessions, could be on the table. But Ukrainians fear that Putin will use any pause in the fighting to regroup his beleaguered forces. Russia's war against Ukraine is entering its sixth week, and we are here to unpack all the moving parts, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me also from Washington, D.C. is retired U.S. Admiral James Fogo, who has served as commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet of U.S forces in Europe and Africa, and of the Allied Joint Forces Command in Naples, Italy. These days, he is the dean of the Center for Maritime Strategy, a Washington-based think tank that is part of the Navy League of the United States. Welcome to the vertical, Jamie. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. Brian, thanks so
0: much for uh, bringing me on your podcast. Uh, it's a real honor to be on Power Vertical with you, uh, especially with your expertise in uh, all things happening in Europe, Eastern Europe, and particularly the Russian Federation.
1: Yeah, I know it's an honor to have you on here today. It's, it's just, it's just going to be the two of us, so I thought we'd just have a, a pretty casual conversation. And what I wanted to do, was have a discussion about two aspects of this war. Um, the military situation on the ground at the moment, which, as I noted in my intro, appears to, be, to appears to have reached an inflection point. Um, then in the second half, I wanted to focus on your wheel horse and look at Black Sea security. So let's start now with the situation on the ground. Um, the, the Russian advance on major Ukrainian population centers has been stalled in its tracks for weeks. Kiev and Kharkiv are still standing. Mariupol, miraculously, is still hanging on. And Russia is only just barely hanging on to Kherson, which is the only major city that it has been able to capture. There have been noises out of Moscow that Russia is going to refocus its offensive on eastern Ukraine and try to consolidate its control of the Donbass region. But none of us are quite sure how seriously to take that assertion. A good rule of thumb with the Russians is watch what they do, not what they say. Jamie, what do you see happening on the ground and what are you watching for at the moment on the ground?
0: Well, thanks a lot, Brian. And uh, as you know, I'm a naval officer, but I do pay attention to the ground or the land domain and what's been happening here uh, in Ukraine. I find uh, the whole thing uh, tragic, but also interesting and a fascinating case study in modern warfare. And so if I could, I want to uh, chat a little bit about the Russian O-Plan, Uh, I would subscribe that term to them as though, uh, you know, we would operate uh, as combatant commanders around the world. And I think this this Russian operational plan for war has failed or is failing. And uh, I want to go back to, you know, my roots. Uh, I had two grandfathers in World War One in the trenches with Commonwealth forces alongside France against Imperial Germany. One of them then continued into World War Two. And my father hit the beach in Normandy, at D plus 45, about 45 days after the Allied landing. And so, you know, I've always been a uh, kind of an amateur history buff. But if you want to go back and look at, you know, Hitler's assault on Russia, Operation Barbarossa, his generals didn't want to get involved. He didn't allow himself enough time before the onset of winter. He didn't take the lessons learned from Napoleon. His supply chain and uh, logistic support to the troops of the Wehrmacht, which, uh, was a pretty effective army, was poor. Uh, their leadership was good. Let's contrast that with what's going on in Russia right now. Uh, conscripts are leading on the front line. They were overconfident because of we subscribe uh, the Grazimov Doctrine to what transpired in Crimea in 2014. Mm-hmm. And what transpired there was the Russians just walked in. But for the most part in Crimea, it was a Russia-friendly crowd living in the eastern part of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, After uh, there was no resistance, there was a referendum. Legitimate or illegitimate, the people voted to stay with Russia. Uh, So with that confidence and with that preponderance of troops, 190,000, 200,000, Putin made the decision to cross the line and invade. He put conscripts on the front line like cad- cannon fodder, and some would speculate that he was not even told that they were out there. We're seeing a lot of that reporting now, yeah. a lot of classified reports being declassified in social media today. Uh, the chain of command has uh, has lost clarity uh, with the battlefield soldiers uh, on the field. I would say that it is weak with a capital W from the chief of defense in Russia, Gerasimov on down. Uh, Communications, not chain of command communications, but radio, uh, telephone communications are poor. Uh, They're not using uh, covered networks. They're in the clear. And when they broadcast on these uh, HF or VHF radios, whether it's line of sight or or higher powered, you know, ham radio operators are picking that up. Uh, The Ukrainians are picking that up. And they're using that information to get inside the Russians' loop, you know, for the uh, for the for the listenership, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. So figure out where they're going to go before they go there, and then meet them with stiff resistance. Russian intel has been poor, absolutely poor, in trying to feed back up the chain of command the kind of resistance that the Ukrainians are are uh, are putting up. Even Putin uh, has been ignorant of that. There's false reporting going up and down the chain. Uh, relief is coming, supplies are coming from up the chain down and from down the chain up, hey, we're doing okay. And this is typical of the Russian Federation, something you've probably studied. They're lying. And in a time of war, that causes loss of life on the part of the Russian Federation. Uh, why?
1: Why would that be? This, is, this was my question, Jimmy, because I'm, I'm like, looking, listening to you, and it, 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 it scans with everything I've been watching, right? The yeah. chain of command looks really weak, The comms are not secure. I mean, those are the two things that I'm kind of pulling out of what you're saying there. Why is that the case? I mean, why? I mean, how can a military of the caliber of Russia's have weak comms? How can you have such a weak chain chain of command that's breaking down? Why are so many generals close to the front and getting killed? what what is good did we just overestimate the russian military or is, is something else going on here
0: yeah so i think we did overestimate uh the ground forces and the air forces of the russian military later on i think we'll get a chance to talk about uh the russians in the maritime domain uh, particularly concerned about the uh, undersea domain but we'll save that for later so the first problem i see is a lot of the equipment that's failing out there you know you it's not just communications equipment and having to use uh uh, radio, telecommunications in the clear. It's things like uh, massive truck tires or, you know, uh, uh, vehicles that, you know, are these big two and a half ton trucks buying Chinese made tires that are failing out in the field because they're inferior. Uh, there's also a lack of training. Uh, one of the things that I've observed is, uh, prior to the big exercise I led in Europe, Trident Juncture, it was 50,000 soldier, sailors, Airman, and Marines. The Russians had done one called Vostok. Mm-hmm. They boasted or they claimed that it was 300,000 personnel. And I said, well, that's a lot. you know." And it was a big lift for us to get 50,000 people in the field and move seven equivalent brigades in, in 30 days. How did they do that? Well, a lot of people told me, again, this comes down to the false reporting. Uh, so if you took a company of personnel and put them in Vostok, you either counted a whole battalion or a regiment. Uh-huh. If one ship of a squadron went out or one submarine of a squadron, they tend to count the entire squadron as... Participatory in that exercise, and therefore the numbers uh, get inflated. A lot of times, when they go out for an exercise, it's not really an exercise. The exercise is just getting people out to sea or into the field. They don't do any real training. They don't have an NCO cadre, non commissioned officers like we and Western NATO democracies do. And those are the leaders in the field. So the conscripts are out there. You know, a lot of them that are being captured and interrogated are saying, we didn't know we were going into Ukraine. They just told us to get in our tanks and drive to the West. And suddenly we find ourselves being shot at. So all of these things, you know, kind of lead to the failures on the battlefield. Now, the general's question is a good one. I think they're up to seven uh, general officers killed. Uh, My sense of that is that uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, Went away for a while, supposedly had heart problems, and then he was back in the mix uh, in the last couple of days. Gerasimov has fallen into disfavor. The hero of the Gerasimov doctrine of 2014, now Putin has, you know, a, uh, a a sight, a laser point sight right on his <laughs> forehead. So, 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 what do you think those guys are doing as they sit back in Moscow and call the shots from the top down? They're telling their field commanders, you know what? You better get your ass in there and you better get results or else and that or else means uh, lose your position lose your rank or potentially a firing squad and so i think the generals are taking more risk the other thing is poor intelligence lack of communications you know i don't know how many of those seven that have been killed have wandered into a fight when they were told that the area was non-hostile or we would use the term a permissive environment sure general you can go up there and see the troops on the front line next thing you know A sniper gets him or uh, a bomb or a missile drops on his head or artillery strikes at him. They've lost some popular generals. I think a couple of these guys, I've read what has been said about them uh, on social media. uh, They were popular with their troops because that's the kind of generals they were. We have generals like that. You know, the Marines like to go up to the front lines and be with their troops. General Mattis was (laughs) uh, a Marine's Marine. You know, every Marine loved General Mattis because he was out there on the front lines in Fallujah with them. So it's not unusual to see... Uh, general officers uh, forward, uh, you, you, they wouldn't pick up a rifle and fight with the uh, the guys on the front line, but they want to find out what's going on. And they're in a vulnerable position now because they have to be there to call mm-hmm. the shots. There's no NCOs, leadership's poor, and the Ukrainians are getting inside that OODA loop, finding out where they are and killing them. And I think that might be a plausible explanation for what you're seeing there.
1: What about the comms? I mean, this this to me is really puzzling because, I mean, that that just seems so basic that you have secure comms in a battlefield.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I was surprised by that, too. And there was a great report by the New York Times last week that had uh, some of these radio intercepts uh, online. Mm. You could listen to them. Yep. And, uh, you know, one particular call sign kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And there was frustration. There was, uh, you know, temper tantrums. Uh, mm-hmm. This one guy with this one call sign was uh, weeping on the radio because he wasn't getting air support. Obviously, it, it, the people that were affiliated with him were being killed. And uh, then a Ukrainian uh, voice came on uh, speaking Russian, and there was a translation. And it said, uh, you know, call sign such and such. It is better to be a deserter than fertilizer. Leave uh-huh. now. And so, you know, uh, there's probably uh, a couple of things happening. There's uh, jamming going on, uh, electronic warfare uh, may not be as sophisticated as what we're doing in the West, but I'm, I'm sure it's impacting their ability to communicate up and down the chain of command. And when the troops can't talk to one another, they get frustrated and they may just violate uh, a security rule and say, to heck with it, I've gotta get air support, so I'm going out in the clear. And uh, uh, you do what you gotta do uh, to survive. I just see it as uh, as sloppy, Uh, unprofessional. Mm. And uh, what it looks like, it's not a professional army out there. It looks like a a bunch of undisciplined rabble in the battlefield. That then leads to other problems, second and third order effects of that. These guys, the Russians are out in the field. They don't have supplies. They don't have ammunition. A lot of them are being killed. They're not even picking up their dead. Right. No modern army in the West would ever tolerate that. I mean, we go back and we leave None of our brothers and sisters behind. They're not picking up their dead. And you know, I wouldn't be very motivated if I was a conscript, and I'm in the front line. And I know because as I've come up through the line, uh, I see a mobile crematorium in the rear area. You know, which is going to be, you know, my coffin if I die. Right. That does not exude confidence from the troops in the in the forward part of the battlefield.
1: You know, this is just yet another one of these examples is that, like, Russia is never as strong as we think they are, and they're never as weak as we think they are, All right? We need to kind of, as our, our mutual friend Michael Kaufman says, we need to right-size them. Um, because we've been kind of looking at the Russian military like it's like it's a thousand feet tall and, and it, it's, it's being exposed as a, as, as a paper tiger, if I could mix my metaphors there. One of the things I wanted to get into, Jamie, is that the changing Russian operational plan, because there seem, does seem to be a shift going on right now. The initial plan was to to decapitate the Ukrainian regime to come down from the north in Belarus to Kyiv, um, come down from Russia into Kharkiv, and then come come from the south from Crimea and effectively decapitate. They came in in a lot of different vectors here. How do you assess the original operation plan, regardless of how uh, incompetent the execution was, the initial plan? And where, how do you see that plan shifting now?
0: Yeah, you know, as Von Moltke said, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> and uh, This plan, like I said, failed or failing. Was it a good so, plan, though? Uh, no, I think it was a bad plan. It was a bad plan based on bad assumptions. Mm-hmm. The assumptions were that Ukraine wouldn't fight, that uh, Russian uh, forces were superior, that war- Russian supply lines and logistics support would be just fine, that the campaign would last Uh, You know, we've seen uh, unclassified uh, intelligence reporting or stuff that's been released that the expectation was the Russians would be in Kyiv, and everybody would be waving a Russian flag similar to what happened in Crimea in five days or less. And that did not happen. Uh, They've lost a lot of armor, a lot of artillery, a lot of aircraft, and a lot of men killed in action. And who knows how many wounded in action and what impact that's having on the home front. So they are regrouping and pulling back. This then gets to the, the same thing you know. I was talking about, the trust deficit in the peace negotiations. I mean, uh, there's been promises made that as we pull back from Kiev into Belarus, uh, we won't be conducting any offensive operations yet. Long range fires continue into places like Kiev or Kharkiv uh, or Chernev and Mariupol. Mariupol's been, I mean, 95% of the dwellings are destroyed I mean, if the Russians think they're going to save the city, they destroyed the city to save the city for, you know, the Russian Federation, and and you know, it's just absolute and total carnage there, and it 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 constitutes a series of war crimes that have taken place. Um, the, the desperation in uh, where the Russians are now is coming out in some additional reporting, Brian, which you may have seen, and that is that uh, today uh, the Duma is proposing legislation. Uh, to direct uh, the induction of 135,000 conscripts to fill in some of the gaps. Again, uh, you have to train these people, and uh, there's other reporting out there that uh, the Russian schools, commands, and the trainers are being emptied out. You know, these are guys in the rear area that, uh, you know, effectively, in a navy term, go to shore duty for a little while, spend time with their families, and train the troops. Well, they're being put into the battlefield, which means who's going to train the conscripts? They're uh, they're complicating their problem. And that's fine by me. I mean, if you think about it, uh, another World War II example, Eisenhower and de Gaulle arguing about taking uh, the capital city of Paris. And Ike's position was Paris is guarded by uh, German soldiers uh, who are made up of old men and young boys. It's not important, we're gonna go around it, de Gaulle insisted. So they slowed the fight down a little bit so they could liberate Paris Mm. in grand fashion. This is kind of what's happening, I see, uh, on the ground in Russia as they regroup, taking school's commands and putting them in there. Uh, soldiers that may not be trigger pullers are going to go into the fight. Does that make them a more effective fighting force? No. I think it's a desperation measure, and I think it's going to show and continued performance on the ground. Mm. They can't fix this overnight. You know What they ought to do is just call it quits and go home and say, you know, if, if we're going to ever attempt an operation like this ever again, we need to clean house and get rid of all our leadership. And do a complete reevaluation uh, of our situation and our ground forces. But they're not going to do that. They're not going to be driven by a fanatic who wants to take over Ukraine, an unreasonable man. And he doesn't get truth. Nobody speaks truth to power because they fear that it'll be off with their head. And that's just no way to run a, uh, a professional organization thank goodness it is that way because otherwise if they've been successful on the battlefield we may not be having this conversation right we'd be having a very different one and i want them to continue to fail and i want ukraine to have their their freedom and their democracy
1: as do i um and but i do not expect them to pull out um i don't expect them to give up on their their overall strategic goal of subjugating ukraine so what we're seeing now is a a, a change of, of of tactics um now this this renewed focus on eastern Ukraine and on the Donbass, I think is kind of focused on potentially two things, uh, creating that land bridge from the Russian Federation to Crimea. And for that, the linchpin of that, of course, is Mariupol, which is why, I mean, Russia's not trying to, they want that land, they want that 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 territory to be able to connect Russia to Crimea. That That's number one. And then number two if they can get past Mykolaev, where the Ukrainians are putting up an absolutely heroic fight um then the next the next item on the agenda is going to be Odessa which would be Ukraine's last last port so i see this this effort to kind of take that kind of crescent shaped uh strip of land um but that's still not going to be enough for them and then there's talk of a possible attempt to partition Ukraine how do you see that playing out do you see do you see anything on the ground that suggests that that might be successful as a plan b <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, uh, on your plan B, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Getting that land bridge is something that has been a Putin objective for a very long time. You know, after he got into Crimea, what did he do? He created a bridge across the Sea of Azov, but it was insufficient for the amount of commercial traffic or military traffic that that he wanted to consolidate his gains in that territory and also strangulate or strangle. Uh, the Ukrainian interests in the port of Mariupol. But he's fairly successful in that. Now that he has uh, rolled the dice and taken this uh, this big chance with all of his forces and taken huge losses, I see the the pullback as a reevaluation of the plan. And somebody, either he came up with it himself or the general officers and the defense minister convinced him, hey, we can still declare victory if we get this crescent that takes us all the way, not just Mariupol uh, and Nikolaev. And, and by the way, Nikolaev—I mean, it was uh, heart sick for the Ukrainians a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I've been on their flagship, the Hemet Sagadashny, and uh, it was an old FSB patrol frigate, uh, which they got a hold of uh, in the partition, and uh, they called it their flagship, and they had that thing painted up and cleaned up big holiday colors. I was on it in Odessa. And the commanding officer was ordered uh, by the chain of command to scuttle it in Nikolayev. So it's rolled yeah. over on its side. And I did a comparison side by side. As a naval officer, you know, must have made the, uh, the CO sick to have to do that, but we didn't want that to uh, fall into Russian hands. And so from Nikolaev down to Odessa. Now, Odessa is an interesting case, uh, Brian, because you, you know the Russians, you know the history over there in Ukraine. There's mm-hmm. both Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox uh, presence in Odessa. There are Russian and Ukrainian presence on Odessa, it's a a cultural city of museums, uh, of uh, history, uh, of grand écoles, you know, and uh, churches like uh, Lviv. And uh, something says to me that the Russians would prefer to take it intact, but they know they can't do that. And they're going to have to make a decision. That's, I think, part of the calculus. The second thing is the resistance there will be absolutely but heroic fierce. as it has yeah. been anyplace else. And yeah it may be even worse than what we've seen before. So when President Zelensky two weeks ago was uh, broadcasting the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, they're going to come in an amphibious assault uh, from the sea, everybody pulled back and sandbagged the town. You've seen you know uh, in social media all the tank traps, uh, mm-hmm. all the sandbags, all the rubber tires that are ready to become you know the barricades, of Les Miserables in Paris in 1789. And so they're gonna put up a fight and the Russians might get ashore, but I don't think they're gonna get any further than that. The other thing that was interesting was to watch what happened to those uh, three ships in Mariupol. And uh, one or two destroyed, and the others beating feet out of harbor. I think that was was a shock to the Russians. And uh, the Navy certainly was surprised. They were boasting about their presence there. We're here, we've got resupplies for the troops. You know, yet another uh, uh, sever in the lines of communication and logistics to the troops in the field when those ships were either destroyed or left port. So uh, they, they will not forget that if and when they plan or execute an assault on Odessa.
1: Yeah, no, I'm. I'm still. I mean, Mikolaev is. I mean, Odessa is going to owe a big debt of gratitude to Mikolaev if they if they survive this, because Mikolayev has basically uh, kept the Russians at bay. As far as Odessa goes, I mean, I lived in Odessa in the early '90s. It's a city I absolutely Where adore. Is, uh, yeah, absolutely. yeah, no, it's a it's a very special place. Um, it's largely it's it's it's, it's largely Russian speaking, um, but Odessans have this intense civic pride. Um, they uh they they say that they're the freest Russian speaking city in the world. Um, and they and they 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 cherish their freedom, and they're going to fight. Um, they also are known for their humor. Uh, those, those those people you know, putting the sandbags up and the barricades up, I, I guarantee you, Jamie, they were cracking jokes the whole time, and those jokes, I guarantee you, were absolutely hilarious. But do you, I mean, do you. so you don't see this, this change tactic working in the West? You don't see them kind of capturing what they've set out to capture? No, I think uh, obviously
0: they haven't made it as far as their goals uh, originally. Uh, were laid down and you know i don't uh, i don't have visibility into that uh you know only the the russian general right. staff maybe our intel community does but uh they've pulled back and they've relied on uh less ethical measures
1: mm-hmm. of
0: fighting the war with long range fires and indiscriminate you know grad rocket launchers that they used in grozny that they used in aleppo mm-hmm. and this then puts them in a very bad position with re, uh, respect to the rest of world opinion because they've committed war crimes. They've uh, they've attacked uh, uh, occupied areas, uh, residential areas, uh, where civilians are living. They've done incredible collateral damage. They've killed uh, you know, mothers, grandmothers, children. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have not allowed for a humanitarian corridor. Again, the trust mismatch, sure, you can leave Mariupol in a humanitarian corridor and people are killed the next day because they're being shelled. Uh, absolutely horrendous. And uh, I just, I, I, you know, I knew that uh, the Russians were tough, but I never expected this kind of carnage to be inflicted on fellow Slavic citizens. I am just stunned by the, uh, the brutality and, uh, and the lack of concern for any of the uh, civilian elements here. So uh, they may be wanting to split the country in two. Again, the, the Ukrainian resistance has been spectacular. And you know what? Those supply lines are holding out. Uh, stuff is flowing in there. The more atrocities that take place on the ground, uh, the more the West and the proclivity of the West to provide Ukraine with what, it's need, what it needs. So we haven't seen a no-fly zone yet. We haven't seen MiG-29s going in there. But we're starting to see other weapon systems that weren't around in the beginning of the war. Yeah. Remember, the Germans originally said, we'll give you helmets. And uh, this has completely reversed uh, the position of the German government and policy and probably German public opinion. So now we have 2% GDP, $100 billion. They're buying the F-35 and they're flowing weapon system, albeit slowly, into the Ukraine. Zelensky hasn't been exactly happy with that, but that's a big turnaround for the Germans. We saw the US provide switchblade, you know, the drone Mm. that attacks troops or small vehicles on the ground. I submit that they need more stuff to defend the coastline. You know, They need coastal defense cruise missiles. Again, we missed our opportunity in 2014. That's right. when the lethal should have been flown in there. And I think you and I talked about this on another podcast. They don't have the luxury of Patriot like uh right. do and we do and some of our counterparts who have purchased that system. It's a damn good system. They also don't have the luxury of Iron Dome that Israel has to protect pretty much all of the territory of Israel. And I'm amazed at how well that system works. It's like 95%. Uh, PK or kill ratio when an incoming uh, missile, a ballistic missile or a round comes from the occupied territories into Israel, they don't have that, so they're having to make up for it with their grit, with their determination, and with Stingers. But you know, as this lull takes place in the conflict, I say flow more of this stuff in there, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and perhaps uh, you know the poles have a great missile; it's a Norwegian strike missile on a truck, and it's mobile. I mean, we have a mobile harpoon, uh, but that. That's a tough policy decision for right. governments and for the U.S. government in terms of uh, escalation and the impact on, you know, where are where's the other side on the threat of uh, tactical nuclear weapons or chemical weapons?
1: Right. And before before we move into the second half and talk about that maritime security piece, I did. There's one other thing I wanted to touch on, and that's uh, I mean the, the Pentagon says basically Russia's regrouping their forces. They haven't really given up on Kyiv. It's just a pause. And at the same time, we have these peace talks that went on this week in Istanbul. Um, when, and the, the contours of a potential deal seemed to be kind of emerging. Um, the, the idea was that Ukraine would give up its, its, its aspiration to join NATO and pledge neutrality, that you'd have a 15-year negotiation about the future of Crimea, and that Putin and Zelensky would decide the future of the Donbass. When I was looking at this, one word just kept popping into my head, and that word is extortion. It's not like Ukraine wanted this war. Russia is bombing civilian centers, and they're basically saying, we will stop if you do this. It's It, it, it looks like geopolitical extortion to me. You correctly pointed out, Jamie, that they've clearly committed war crimes in Mariupol and elsewhere. Um, how can we possibly come to some kind of a peace agreement here when this is when it's effectively extortion
0: you're absolutely right brian it is extortion and uh this gets back to that uh say do mismatch or lack of trust uh in the negotiating process why would you trust the russians when they're committing war crimes why would you trust the russians when they're lying about uh humanitarian corridors or the pullback of troops and a ceasefire and it doesn't happen the next night you know, there's a rain of rockets or bombs or artillery onto a city that was supposed to be uh, left alone in a supposed ceasefire. You know, the other thing about the uh, the extortion in the deal is uh, Roger, no NATO membership. I think that's become intuitively obvious to President Zelensky that, you know, his pleas for a no-fly zone uh, have not been fulfilled. And uh, he sees uh, his timeline for NATO membership. It was frustrating before, it's even more frustrating now. Uh, But there's other things. Uh, uh, Apparently, part of this deal was to allow Ukraine to have EU membership. And uh, Ukraine wants security guarantees, not NATO membership, but they want other nations to be responsible for um, effecting or executing a no-fly zone should this ever happen again. Uh, That's going to be a tough negotiation, Mm -hmm. not just with the Russians, but also with those uh, Western powers that would be responsible. Uh, for conducting that no-fly zone, it doesn't say anything about you know uh, holding people to account on the Russian side right. for war crimes. It doesn't say anything about reparations from Russia to rebuild uh, you know the cities that have been absolutely devastated. You know Mariupol looks like Warsaw in World War II after the Germans were done with it. Uh, the Poles rebuilt Warsaw, and it's spectacular what they mm-hmm. did. But that took money. That took a Marshall Plan. I don't see that happening
1: uh you know, in the in the deal or uh in well that case. that three hundred billion we froze from there, their <laughs> their central bank that, gas that might be used for that. Yes, yeah, That may be
0: useful. <laughs> I've heard a, that uh,
1: floated actually.
0: Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And that would certainly uh that would certainly be a better use of that money and it should never return to the Russian Federation. But you know, I, I'm looking at sanctions and uh today I read in uh in the Times that uh the Russian ruble has reached almost its pre-sanction level. And so I hope that the allies stay tough on this. And as President Biden has said many times, hey, it's going to take a little while for these to really bite and dig in and have the uh, long-term impact on the economy. So we saw the ruble go down to 1% of its value, and now it's back up hovering where it was before. The other wild card here is what are other nations doing uh, to bail Russia out? Uh, Maybe not because of for, for moral or uh, ethical reasons, but because of necessity. You know, you've, you've got uh, an intransigence in India, uh, yeah. a similar intransigence in Israel for a lot of reasons. Um, and you've got China, the mm-hmm. wild card there. Uh, they can do a lot to support uh, their Russian frenemies. And I fear that, uh, you know, if Xi Jinping decides to take that route, he's gonna end up on the wrong side of history but uh, he'll never be held accountable for that either. So Russia has a couple of safety nets that they can turn to. And uh, this thing can be prolonged for a very long time. The other thing was interesting is, uh, you know, the story about the oligarch Abramovich taking a handwritten note from Zelensky to Putin and Putin becoming furious and saying, tell him I threw it in the trash. So uh-huh. that, that really kind of pours cold water on any kind of a peace process or uh, a trust in a negotiation strategy between Uh, the Ukraine and Russia.
1: This has put China in a very difficult position, but at the same time, it, it, it's given China a bit of an opportunity as they, they, they watch Russia and the West go at it. This is a good point to shift gears. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how the war in Ukraine could change the nature of Black Sea security. And we'll have that discussion with someone who knows a thing or two about maritime security. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C. is retired U.S. Admiral James Fogo, who has served as commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet, of U.S. Naval Forces in Europe and Africa, and of the Allied Joint Forces Command in Naples, Italy. These days, James is the Dean of the Center for Maritime Strategy, a Washington-based think tank is part of the Navy League of the United States. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Yeah, what's wrong? You 13 war,
0: we, children,
1: us, so you just need to look at a map to understand the ferocity of Russia's assault on Mariupol. Capturing that strategic port city would allow Russia to establish a land bridge to the annexed Crimean peninsula. And you just need to look at a map to understand why Ukraine is fighting so fiercely to keep the city of Mykolaiv from falling. Because if Mykolaiv falls, then Russia will have a clean shot at the vital port of Odessa. And if Odessa falls, Ukraine loses its access to the Black Sea. Jamie, you know more than a thing or two about Black Sea security. How do you see the battle for the Black Sea coast in southern Ukraine? And how important is this for the broader issue of Black Sea security going forward? Brian, thanks a lot. And you've been
0: over uh, to my old headquarters in Naples and have helped me with this analysis over time. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Black Sea uh ambassadors conference that uh that you participated in and that, and that you, were.
1: you were a very gracious host at, i might add <laughs> well no and and you were uh, brilliant in explaining
0: the intricacies of how the russians think but let me get to that conference in a minute if i could with your indulgence i'd like to kind of take you back to a theory that i floated to a number of people here in the last month in washington and it's really a boiling frog scenario that's been going on in the black sea Uh, since the Cold War, since 1986. And I'll start with a data point there, although things changed dramatically with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990. But uh, back in 1986, there was a landmark incident between U.S. Navy vessel, the USS Yorktown, and the Russian or the Soviet frigate, Bezovotny. Now, uh, Yorktown was running a freedom of navigation operation, and it was challenging a Russian baseline in the Black Sea uh, near Crimea. And basically, as you go, for your readers, it's like uh, the Gulf of Sidra off of Libya. You get, you just can't draw a line from one point, uh, the, the highest or the most uh, seaborne uh, point of uh, land, to the next most seaborne point of land and draw a line across and say, you can't come into my bay or my area. That's a baseline. The baseline for 12 nautical miles from land, territorial waters, has to be driven or it has to be drawn along the coastline, so it does not extend uh, into an area that that would be contested under UN Conventional Law of Sea. So uh, Yorktown was in there, running through one of these baselines that the Russians observed that we didn't observe, and we were trying to prove a point. Bezovodny came out, and the two ships didn't have a collision, they had an elision, which is a nice way of saying they had a collision, but it was a glancing blow, something you call shouldering, where the Russian ship came in and tried to push the Yorktown out of the way. Raked the deck, ripped off all the stanchions, Uh, an anchor pulled one of the harpoon launchers 180 degrees back, and the the anchor parted. Uh, Both those skippers, to my knowledge, I know the U.S. guy was promoted to Admiral and uh, got medals, and so that kind of conduct back then in the Cold War was rewarded. When we got to the fall of the Soviet Union, the 90s, the peace dividend, Francis Fukuyama, you know, the end of history, that didn't happen. Um, We then started to have some tension build up again as we moved uh, to the east with NATO members and a lot of NATO members, you know, some of the former Balkan states. Georgia and Ukraine were on the list, uh, but they had some maturing to do, and uh, they became partners for peace. Uh, Back in 2007, I had the privilege of working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen, uh, arguably, unarguably, one of the best chairmen we ever had. And he made it a point, uh, uh, you know, after he'd hired me as a ZA, we went to Brussels, Belgium, for one of his first North Atlantic Council meetings and and military committee meetings. And uh, the Russian chief of defense was going to be there. Uh, That was General Yuri Balievsky. Balievsky was the former head of their rocket forces and became chief of defense and uh, it struck me right away when I saw him in person at the table. He looked just like Nikita Khrushchev. It reminded me for that scene of uh, <laughs> Enemy at the Gates, you know, where it was Khrushchev <laughs> running that operation. And, uh, and you know, short of banging his shoe on the table, uh, Baliesky was uh, a bit of a bent trash can in that uh, Russian-NATO council meeting, and it was all about NATO's encroachment of Russia. Well, Admiral Mullen decided that despite that Uh, temper tantrum, he would invite him for a counterpart visit. And so, Balievsky was delighted to come to the United States, and I was able to sit on those meetings. And the atmosphere was more cordial than I thought. The the two men had a great dialogue. And one of the things that Balievsky said said to him was, listen, if you don't stop this movement to the east and encroachment around us, then uh, Putin will withdraw from the Conventional Forces Europe Treaty, uh, which was bad, because CFE— is a treaty that exchanges information about military exercise, supposed to build confidence. And uh, pulling out of it means you're no longer uh, obligated by treaty to talk about, well, I'm going to have this big exercise called Vostok with 300,000 people. Mm. And it starts on this date and terminates on this date. And trust me, it's not a precursor to an invasion of any country like we've seen in Ukraine. And that same year, they did a soft withdrawal and several years later, a hard withdrawal from that treaty. Then. Uh, the Chad changed hands. Makarov came in, Nikolai Makarov, he was a logistician, as I recall. and he was supposed to be a great reformer of uh, the Russian Federation armed forces. That didn't last long before, you know, he was given the order to go into Georgia. And uh, that was not a conflict that is as bloody as this conflict in Ukraine is. In fact, uh, you know, much less so. <clears throat> but the u s. went back in and spent a couple of billion dollars rebuilding Georgia afterwards, and we said, we have to do something about the relationship with the Russians. So, we're going to push the reset button. You remember that famous picture right? With, uh, Lavrov, still there as foreign minister, and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. That opened up a whole uh, a new world of collaboration, cooperation between Russia and the United States. And we had this thing called the Russia work plan, which you're familiar with, but mm-hmm. day one of the year, January 1st, all the way to the 31st, we're doing uh, chaplain exchanges, the band exchanges, I remember Admiral Harris when he was Sixth Fleet commander went up and marched in a parade in in Murmansk on May Day, and uh, you know I don't think he really wanted to do that, but it was part <laughs> of this part of this work plan. We had the Russians and those Rapuchkas that are in uh, in the Black Sea now participating in Baltops up until 2013. I commanded in 15, no Russian forces. Six, I commanded in 16, no Russian forces. But up until then, they'd come out and they'd kind of. You know, lollygag around the ocean and the Baltic and, and participate in a few things. But the fact is, they were there and they were learning about NATO and we were learning about them. During the run up to the Sochi Olympics, I relieved Admiral Phil Davidson of Sixth Fleet. I remember Phil telling me, hey, you know, uh uh last year we had uh the USS Mount Whitney and I think it was the USNS Spearhead in the Baltic, one of the expeditionary patrol frigates. I'm sorry, I said Baltic. Black Sea, and we had an open line of communications with the Black Sea Fleet Commander, so that if there was an untoward incident at the Socio Olympics, a lot of Americans there, a lot of diplomats, I think even the president went for a visit, uh, we could get our people out and we could assist with, say it was a terrorist uh, attack, mm-hmm. right? And so that made us feel good. I'm not sure the Russians really appreciated that a lot much, but they tolerated it. And then Maidan happens in Ukraine, and uh, all bets are off. Putin gives the order to go into uh, Crimea, and uh, they essentially walk in. So once they've got Crimea, then these dominoes start taking place where they build the Kerch Bridge, they cut off the Sea of Azov, And at the time, you came to see us in 2018 for that ambassador's Mm -hmm. conference. So we brought in all the U.S. ambassadors from uh, Black Sea nations, and we brought in all the CNOs or the CHADs from those Black Sea nations that were friendly to NATO, including Admiral Voronchenko from Ukraine. Yes. And Brian, you probably remember at the end of that meeting, he stood up and uh, he kind of broadcast the establishment of the Mosquito Fleet. They didn't yes. have a lot of ships. We're giving them ships. We gave them four island-class Coast Guard cutters. Hold that thought because i got a comment on that. He takes his Mosquito Fleet, a couple of uh, fast patrol craft and a tug, and thinks he's going to make a run through the Kerch Bridge up mm-hmm. to Mariupol. I remember. Intercepted by the Russian FSB. They ram the tug, they put a hole in it, they shoot at the fast attack craft, and the two young commanding officers uh decide, hey, you know, it's better uh, that we call it at this point, and they surrendered those vessels. Twenty-seven Ukrainian sailors in uniform are taken prisoner yeah. and putting in put in prison in Moscow in one of Amnesty International's worst dungeons in the world. Complete violation of the Geneva Convention. All this is going on, and we act surprised by Russian behavior, both on the ground and at sea, so mosquito feet, fleet uh, history will have an opinion on that. But it didn't work out the way Admiral Voronchenko uh, thought it would. And at the time, I had uh, adopted a position of look. You know, if it worked in the Sea of Azov for the Russians, they've essentially taken control of that area. They're strangling Mariupol. They may just export this to the rest of the Black Sea. Yeah. That was my fear. Then we started to see. What uh, my good friend, uh, Keith Blount, uh, the MARCOM commander who's in Northwoods, UK, Vice Admiral Blount, said was the carpet bombing of the Northern Black Sea with closure areas that are intended under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea to provide a notice to mariners of an exor- a military exercise coming. Mm-hmm. You're either going to launch a missile, you're going to drop a bomb. Uh, You're going to shoot a torpedo or you're going to have a bunch of live gunfire out there. And you don't want fishermen to get in the way and get shot. And you don't want commercial assets to be driving through there unknowing and untoward and getting into the middle of an exercise with live rounds. So you put these things out a couple weeks before and then they last for the exercise until a certain date and they expire. They are. It does not give you control of that ocean. A lot of folks don't understand that. It's merely a notice for safety to mariners. And so what the Russians did was they laid them down all over the Black Sea from March of 2020 until they invaded Ukraine. And, you know, in the meantime, we're out there doing continuing exercises with the knowledge of the Turks, with the Montreux Treaty and abiding by all those rules. And we have the largest sea breeze exercise in the history of sea breeze. And I did a bunch of them when I was over there. Sea breeze was initially a U.S. Ukraine exercise that grew into a number of NATO counterparts in Bulgaria and Romania. So we got all these ships up there and we have two NATO ships in the port of Odessa. And all of a sudden, their automated identification system, AIS, required by the UN Conventional Odyssey for any vessel over 300 metric tons, shows them located off of uh, the harbor of Sevastopol. Now, I, somebody spooked AIS. I don't think we've done the forensics and released no. results officially but it's obvious who did that and by doing so you think of the ramifications i mean the guys that are russian commanding officers in sevastopol going to see whether they knew or didn't know that this was a ruse uh, are spinning up their crews and saying nato was waiting for us off our right. port. what does that mean that means you got a hair trigger you come out you make a mistake or miscalculation uh, sooner sooner than later, you have an Article Five situation, and you've got to deal with that. HMS Defender doing a uh, similar uh, freedom of navigation innocent passage through a transit lane. Uh, the Russians claimed they fired on it, but they did not. They had a reporter on right. board to debunk that. So all these threatening little things are happening in this boiling frog, and then it becomes intuitively obvious that you know 190,000 troops on the border, something's up. A lot of nations were in denial. And uh, then they crossed the border. So we shouldn't have been surprised by that. And my biggest concern now as a naval officer and a former commander over there is, OK, we lost the Sea of Azov, but that NATO would never have been in there anyway. That's a treaty of, uh, of 2000 Russia, Russia, Russia and the Ukraine. And so that was going badly from the get go. Um, but we're always in the Black Sea. We're not in the Black Sea right now. My fear is we have ceded that sea space. Now, how do you get back in there? Well, this same uh, brilliant Royal Navy officer, uh, you know, Admiral Blount has uh, got some choices and some challenges. I mean, you know, there's discussion out there of uh, uh, standing NATO maritime groups. It was always hard to, to get volunteers from nations uh, to make up these groups. There's one for mine countermeasures and there's uh, one that's got uh, cruisers, frigates and destroyers. We use them during ball tops in the Baltic Sea. We use them for uh, exercises and uh, allied uh, training in the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, and they can be formulated and go to places of crisis. Uh, now I think Admiral Blatt's got a lot of ships at his disposal, more than, than I ever saw in my time over there, in excess of uh, 29 or, or 30 ships. So you can conceivably now, with the Allies concerned about uh, Russian naval activities in the Black Sea. Uh, form an SNMG and get back in there. how soon we do that, I think this is going to be a post-conflict whenever that happens. But we need to do it. And the last thing I'll say and turn back to you is uh, on Montreux, I've always maintained that it is best to keep the Turks in NATO and keep them close. Even though they have issues with other allies, bilateral issues, and sometimes they're difficult to deal with because of the chain of command from President Erdogan on down. The Turkish Navy is very professional. They run a very professional organization in regulating Montreux. Uh, it was Foreign Minister Cavusoglu who came out three weeks ago and said, this is not a crisis, it's a war. Put you into a different article in uh, the Montreux Treaty, which says that you can't go in the Black Sea uh, on a Montreux uh, pass if you're not a black sea, if you're a warship and a belligerent and not home ported in a black sea nation. So they asked politely, diplomatically for nations to stay out of the black sea. How do you enforce that? They never had to enforce it, but they at least came out with this proclamation. And I thought that was to their credit. Now, what happens in the future? How do we regulate that? How do we get back in the black sea? We cannot allow this international body of water uh, to just slip away into russian hands if they do what you said which is a real possibility and that is take mariupol mikolayev and get to odessa i don't think they can take odessa but that gives them the land bridge and it, it contributes to this Bifurcation of the country that we were talking about in the first half of the podcast.
1: Yeah, no, Jamie. Thinking back to that 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 conference in Naples back in in toward the ambassadors conference in 20 2018. One thing that jumped out at me. Yeah, the mosquito fleet got all of our attention with um, yeah. the <laughs> Ukraine. But the other thing was the um, the the position of the Turkish commander um, during that, where where he he seemed to be suggesting that. U.S. and NATO should stay out of the Black Sea and focus focus on the eastern Mediterranean. Let us let us handle this. Um, And I remember thinking very skeptically about that because the let's face it, Erdogan was playing footsie with Putin back then. Do you see the Turkish position evolving toward being more constructive from from the point of view of NATO and the allies at this moment?
0: Well, that's a really good point, Brian, because uh, that officer uh, who I, I think is still in command of their Navy was uh, Admiral Adnan Osball, Uh a good friend and a good guy. And he started as a three star uh, in the position, which was kind of a, you know, a temporary contract for him. So they're going to see how it goes. You know, he's got a a president who's a challenging guy to deal with a strong man. And after about a year, I remember uh, congratulating him for gaining his fourth star. Uh, He was a very moderate thinker Oswald. Uh, He was uh, a man who you could have a conversation with. He spoke great English. uh, He was diplomatic. And it was the kind of person that I liked to deal with. It was almost like a relationship between the Greek uh, CNO and later Chad and later defense minister, Admiral Apostolakis, and the Turkish defense minister, General Akar, who had been a land army commander and the chief of defense, and then the defense minister. Those two guys worked out their differences. And uh, Admiral Osball, after the Sea of Azov, I called him up, and it was uh, uh, January of 19, and he asked me, when are you coming back in? And that was uh, mm. shortly after, it was around January 6th, we had Fort McHenry going up into uh, Constanta, and he was happy about that because he wanted the Black Sea to, to remain peaceful and calm. He was not at all excited about the fact that this situation had taken place up in the sea of Azov, and it uh impacts turkey's commercial interests as well as others in the black sea so uh you know what will transpire in the future with regards to the turks one of the other things we always talked about is could we resurrect you know the the old black sea flotilla yes a flotilla which the
1: turks shot down at the warsaw nato summit if i remember the turks and the bulgarians
0: yeah. You know, one of the one of the pretenses that they maintained was um, we used to have this and the Russians were in it. And uh, the Western democracy said, well, we should have uh, would we'll call, it whatever you want, a Black Sea Fleet, Black Sea Flotilla, Black Sea Maritime Group. But it should be uh, Western democracies and NATO nations that are in there patrolling around and making sure that either the Russians or illicit traffickers or anybody else is not up to uh, illegal or nefarious activity. You're right. The Turks were not in favor of that because, of course, they have uh, clients and interest and in trade and relations, not just with Western democracies, but also with a number of uh, Middle Eastern nations and Russia, and I'm sure China. Uh, and so they were not enamored with creating this standing naval force in the Black Sea that would get underway, go out, work together, and exercise. And to us, that sounds like normality. That's what you should be doing, right? And uh, to them, though, it was a it was a non-starter, and and I don't know if this crisis would push them further into the no category of a Black Sea flotilla, or could it have the reverse effect and convince them that you know some rational, reasonable, reasonable countries uh, should come together and formulate this. Uh, uh, Black Sea Fleet and maintain uh, stability and security around here and make sure that we can keep sea lines of communications and baselines and port facilities open. You know, one of the things that I'm sure bothers our Romanian friends right now is that whole incident in Snake Island when the Slava bombed the uh, soldiers and uh, naval personnel that were on that island that, you know, made that, uh, that great quote <laughs> that lives in infamy and, uh, and hopefully, you know, most of them lived, and I heard some of them were passed
1: back in a prisoner. The, exchange. the man that said that immortal quote uh, was released in a prisoner exchange and was just honored in Kiev. Actually, yeah, and you know, more power to him. But Snake
0: Island is only a few kilometers away from the mouth of the Danube. Right, and the Romanians rely on the Danube. Uh, you know, it's a it's an artery uh, of commerce and life's blood for Romania. It's also an alternative method to get goods and, frankly, military hardware, into the Black Sea because you can drive it across land and get on ferries or uh, you know container ships and come down uh, the Danube and into the Black Sea, and you don't have to declare a Mantra, uh declaration, and you don't have a limit on how long you can stay. Uh-huh. So, so that's a really important river or artery for not just the Romanians, but for other NATO nations as well. And now you've got a Russian presence on Snake Island or – Perhaps right. they've just left. But uh, it's concerning uh, that, you know, as I said, you take the Sea of Azov, you export the protocol to the Black Sea. Now, what comes next? We need to be back in there.
1: Right. Now, to, to, to wrap us up and kind of pull to kind of take us full circle, I kind of wanted to look just very briefly at the, at the big picture in the Black Sea. And if you kind of superficially look at the map of the Black Sea and look at the map of the littoral nations – you see three NATO members, Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania. Um, you see two NATO partners, Georgia and Ukraine, and you see one adversary, Russia. And in that sense, it looks like the Black Sea should be a NATO lake. It should be dominated by NATO. You got three members, two partners, right, of the six littoral states. But then if you take a little closer look at the map, you see that Russia's occupying Abkhazia which is in Georgia, which is on the Black Sea. You see Russia occupying Crimea, which is Ukrainian, but on the Black Sea. You see Georgia, let's just be polite here and say is becoming a little bit wobbly as a partner um, at the moment, not 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 as solid as they, they had been in the past. And then, of course, you have Ukraine, which is a solid partner, but you have now Russia kind of Moving along the Ukraine's Black Sea coast, attempting cut, cut, to cut it off from the Black Sea. If you look at this picture now, it looks extremely disturbing when you look at this. Because you really are looking at no NATO member, really. And if you look also, Bulgaria and Turkey are not always the most reliable NATO allies in this situation. So when you look at this big picture, are you how disturbed or how concerned are you? Yeah, you paint uh,
0: a fairly accurate picture of the situation. And uh, this gets back to, you know, in the beginning of that boiling frog scenario, 86 or 2007, pick your date, or 2014. um, We did not act, uh, you know, with with speed and uh, with the proper uh, uh, sense of emergency uh, to try to do something about it. Um, So Abkhazia, Crimea... Uh, Georgia, yes. I mean, after the attack on Georgia in 2008, it was decided that Georgia needed a Coast Guard, but it didn't need a big Navy along the lines of what uh, Romania has. Uh, the one nation that you didn't mention was Romania, who Romanian. is hung tough with well, us. Well, Romania
1: is a solid all They that's are solid. <laughs> solid. You
0: know, they, they're struggling to get a frigate out there, and i yeah, no, I
1: didn't mention them as part of the problem because they no, 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 they're no, not no, part yeah, of the problem. Yeah, they're, they're,
0: they're, that's what I mean. I want to, I want to, you know, footstomp the fact that they are solid. You know, I know all their general officers and uh, and their uh, CNO. I also know the Bulgarian CNO, and and that's a good relationship too. But they do have. Uh, Bulgaria does waver a little bit and uh, somewhat in the Russian camp, and they have a diaspora inside Bulgaria and a political situation that causes that. Romania solidly uh, in the alliance and uh, one of our greatest partners out there, but with an older fleet. They've got to recapitalize that fleet and they've got to get those frigates out there. And so you're right. You know, At one time, it should have been a NATO lake. Uh, we've let a lot of that opportunity slip away. And uh, right now we have we are in the process of ceding or have ceded you know a maritime battle space that we need to get back we need to get back in there and I, and i get what you say about the turks and uh, their position which flip-flops back and forth in ukraine right now is fighting predominantly a uh, a land war you know why is is ukraine fighting a land war because we didn't make the maritime a priority i think that was a mistake uh, when we transferred the four island coast guard cutters to Ukraine, you know, my chief of staff went up there and did a commissioning ceremony when I was in Naples uh, for me as my stead. And we stripped all the weapons off of those things. They were in Baltimore Harbor, Admiral Voronchenko came over, he shot the ones he wanted <clears throat> as part of excess defense articles. And we took off the four deck gun and didn't give him a gun, he said, well, if you want one, you can obtain one yourself or get it through foreign military sales. So, you know, what, what goods an unarmed ship? They use it for right. training. Um, And then this goes to a broader question of what is NATO's maritime strategy? The last time it was updated was 2011. And the NATO Strategic Review of uh, uh, November draft, uh, January 2020, so November 19, January 2020, uh, you know, it said we're going to have a maritime strategy. Maybe this catalyst will force that function. For me, I was always... Irritated that we run to the sound of the guns. Something happens in the Baltic, we go to the Baltic. Some crisis happens in the Black Sea, we go to the Black Sea. Some crisis happens in the Eastern Med. You got a huge Russian presence there now, where there was virtually none in 2011 when I started over there. We run to the Eastern Med. Something happens out in the the North Sea or the North Atlantic, uh, we go out there. You've got to be able to spread that peanut butter evenly over the bread, or be able to. Be agile and flexible and move. And this then gets to that issue of a lot more robust, flexible, and well-resourced standing NATO maritime groups as part and parcel of that broader strategy, which I hope the alliance comes up with when they're done with this crisis phase of, uh, of uh, reinforcement of Eastern Europe and what's happening in
1: Ukraine. Yeah, no. The the the, uh, the the geopolitical situation in the world has changed dramatically since 2011, to say the least. Um, and this this discussion of 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 Black Sea security is just another example of how. The security implications uh, and the political implications of this war in Ukraine extend far beyond Ukraine. This is a, this is a watershed paradigm-shifting event going forward, and that's a good place to wrap it up. So on that we sh- on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Uh, joining me from downtown Washington, D.C., has been retired U.S. Admiral James Fogo, who has served as commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet, of U.S. Naval Forces in Europe and Africa, and of the Allied Joint Forces Command in Naples, Italy. These days, James is the dean for the Center for Maritime Strategy, a Washington based think tank that is part of the Navy League of the United States. Admiral, thank you for an enlightening discussion. Brian, thanks
0: very much for having me on your program. Wonderful podcast. Uh, can't wait to uh, listen to the whole thing as it's released here and uh, put it on our website here at the Navy League Center for Maritime Strategy for other people to enjoy. All right. uh, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, let's do this again.
1: Yeah, let, let, let's do this again, and let's get our mutual friend, General Ben Hodges, on the program with us so you guys can make Army-Navy jokes with Absolutely. each other. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas, Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical Blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.